podcasting from Madison, Wisconsin, the home of Bucky Badger and the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. This is the Apothecary Club, a monthly podcast about emerging trends and their impact on pharmaceutical science and drug development. This podcast is a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And now, here's your host, author and educator, Dr. Eric Burns. You are listening to the Apothecary Club Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Eric Burns. Today we're speaking with Dr. George Zagrafi, formerly Dean of the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy. George received his B.S. degree in 1956 from Columbia University and his M.S. in 58 and Ph.D. in 1960 in pharmaceutics from the University of Michigan. After serving on the faculties of Columbia University and the University of Michigan, he joined Wisconsin faculty in 1972. From 1975 to 1980, Dr. Zagrafi served as the Dean of the School of Pharmacy, and his research interests are vast and deep. Some of his topics include interfacial phenomena, including the properties of lipid protein and polymer monolayers and the hydration of crystalline and amorphous solids. In 1989, he was elected to the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. He's received the Distinguished Pharmaceutical Scientist Award from the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists in 1995, and in 1996, the Volweil Research Achievement Award from the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. If this is your first time listening, then thank you for coming. The Apothecary Club podcast is a monthly production for your enjoyment, and the show notes can be found on theapothecaryclub.com. Come back often and feel free to add your podcast to your favorite RSS feeds, or your iTunes account. All links in the show notes are for sharing and for consumption. Now let's get started and get into uh, talking with Dr. Zagrafi. Dr. Zagrafi, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be here. You know, this is a really interesting topic that's starting to grow and is starting to, I would suggest, gain a little bit more interest in the field recently based off of the past research. Can you tell us a little bit just the starting of, of your career and how you ended up in UW-Madison? And, and generally, how did you end up in the, in the area of pharmaceutical sciences to begin with? Very good. Well, uh, my father was a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died when I was young, but uh, I, when I was ready to go to college, it's, it just seemed natural that I'd want to be a pharmacist. So I went to Columbia University College of Pharmacy in New York City, where I grew up. And while I was there, I came under the influence of a number of professors who encouraged me to think about a career in the pharmaceutical sciences as opposed to the practice of pharmacy. So I looked into it and I went on to graduate school at the University of Michigan uh, and received my PhD in 1960. Uh, I decided at that time to to go into an academic career and actually wanted to live in New York City, my hometown, (laughs) so I did go back to Columbia University College of Pharmacy and I was on the faculty there for about five years. But uh, I was invited by the University of Michigan to come back. Some people say I was kind of in a rut going back and forth between Columbia and Michigan. <laughs> but uh, So I went back to Michigan. I was on the faculty there in pharmaceutics for eight years. At that time, there were some major changes here at Wisconsin in the leadership of the school, and the new dean, David Perlman, invited me to consider coming here as, as a full professor in 1971, and eventually I did arrive in 1972 on the faculty. So that's how I made my way to Madison, uh, continuing to go uh, further east with every change. In fact, when I, told my, when I told my mother that I was 
going to Wisconsin. She said, isn't that in another time zone? <laughs> so, they still say that today, I think. Yeah. We're, we're still flyover country. Right. <laughs> so you started as a pharmacist, correct? Yeah. Like that's, that's where you originally... Yeah, back, yeah. And and you just found it sounds to me like the uh, the mental challenges of drug development may have piqued your interest a little bit rather than the practice side. The 1950s were a tremendous per, a period of tremendous growth in the pharmaceutical industry and and and, and the uh, use of science, particularly in pharmaceutical uh, development product development, so that uh, we were very excited with the uh, the opportunity to use our science that we were learning uh, in, in practical ways uh, related to drug development. So, as I said, new faculty came in, programs were, graduate programs were growing, and uh, it was just a time of, you know, the, obviously the pharmaceutical sciences were really uh, attractive at that point. So, so a lot of things were going through change at that point. Can you Can you talk a little bit about how things change within pharmaceutical research and drug development discovery from the time you started to today? I mean, obviously there's there's technological changes, but in addition to the technological changes, where where have you seen the the shifts and and how have they been important and and maybe are some of them you know just maybe in vogue yeah. at the time? I think back in the fifties, uh, early fifties particularly, but. Product development in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry was the end point, the end of the whole process. And uh, people considered formulation, checking for stability and things of that sort, pretty mundane in a way, you know, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, as, uh, as the field progressed, it became obvious that the science was getting more sophisticated uh, and that this, this science could be applied to promoting drug drug product development. So the field started taking on a much more sophisticated, if I may put it that way, mm -hmm. role. Also, the traditional role of, of the pharmacist in industry was to formulate a product from a drug that had been discovered and then take it to the manufacturing facility to be prepared. Uh, but that, uh, that changed dramatically. Uh, we, we started to realize that bioavailability, that was mm -hmm. a new concept that developed after I got my PhD, believe it or not. The whole concept of bioavailability, pharmacokinetics, uh, drug stability at, at a pretty sophisticated level where analytical tools mm -hmm. were more available. So there was a dramatic shift in the sophistication required of uh, individuals working in drug product development. That has evolved today where people with the kind of background that I have get involved even at the drug discovery level in terms of facilitating the proper properties of drugs that would make them more effective. Mm -hmm. So it's been a big change. It was very empirical, very right, empirical. Right, right. Has academia kept up? Well, yes. I think, uh, quite frankly, I think academia, particularly the University of Wisconsin initially with Takaru Higuchi here and his program of physical pharmacy developed in the late 40s, early, early 50s, uh, really set the stage for what came later in, in not only producing PhDs and other personnel to work in the industry at a more sophisticated level, but also uh, developing the science that mm -hmm. was being used. So academia, I think, led the way initially. Uh, and uh, 
to a certain extent, I think academia has followed uh, the needs of industry along the way. That would be a, a general... Uh, I think the relationship between academia and industry has always been one where ac academic studies of principles were picked up by the industry and uh, extended. Do you see the, the opportunities for collaboration between academia and industry to, to continue? I, I ask because we see there's somewhat of a splintering effect happening between big pharma and and the growth of the smaller yeah. pharmaceutical companies, the CROs, all the things that make up pharma now is, yeah. is really splintered. How do you see these opportunities for collaboration between the public and the private going forward with all this competition occurring at all levels of both institutions? Yeah, yeah it, it certainly is more complex today. When, when, when I first came out, there were the usual the major companies, many of whom don't exist anymore. Right, right. Uh, they, uh, they were very supportive of academic research. Uh, they saw the academic centers as providing them with the personnel. They were very anxious to have highly trained scientists as well as getting useful information. Uh, and so they, uh, and they uh, encouraged their scientists, I'm talking about now the drug product mm -hmm. development area, they encourage their scientists to participate in joint collaborative research as well as research within the company. And uh, so that at that point, it was, and, and they really, maybe there were 10 major companies that you could, who were very supportive. Uh, they provided grants without any, uh, you know, without any strings attached to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I supported many of my students with industrial money that doing very basic academic work. Today, uh, two things have happened, as you implied. Uh, the uh, I'm not sure what pharma is anymore. Uh, and, yeah, that's a that's that's a yeah. great and point. Certainly, in certainly, there is a body of, of, of uh, industrial activity that uh, has very little interest in basic developments in R and D, uh, and uh, so I don't see their relationship to academia as being particularly strong. I think there still are uh, a number of uh, industrial companies, what we might call big pharma, who are still keeping close ties with academia, as mm -hmm. far as I can see from my colleagues around the country, including mm -hmm. here. So, uh, but it's, it is definitely more complex. The other thing that has evolved over the years, as I indicated earlier, we could go to a company and say, uh, we'd like to carry out studies on the uh, effects of water, on the stability of uh, certain kinds of solids, uh, and uh, could, would you be willing to give us uh, a small sum of money to support graduate students, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll even collaborate with your scientists. Uh, and they would do that without any strings attached. I think uh, more recently that collaborations are geared to practical issues, mm -hmm. to uh, solving specific problems that might exist within the company, and that's okay. Uh, but it is a little different because the work now is a little more geared to practicality and out of it so that academics have to work hard to sort out how they're going to provide education through the use of such research mm -hmm. for their graduate students at the same time meet the practical needs uh, with the company. So if anything, the collaboration has to be more sophisticated now than it was before. We were pretty much left to... to uh, do our own work 
and give them perhaps a look at it before we published it. But uh, we never had any issues with regard to patents or anything mm -hmm. like that. Now you have to be much more in tune with the company needs. Well, even the professional development side, it's amazing how in the past with those that came before me would always talk about how important the collaborations were with pharma and, and with the industry side. And now when you bring up the opportunity for collaboration, it's not, it, it feels that that's when people become uneasy because are you too connected yeah. to big pharma? Are you, are you providing the best information or are you, for lack of a better term, are you a shill for, for, yeah. for that? And unfortunately, I don't think the science, the professional development, or the continuing education and furthering of the research can happen without that collaboration. And you know that pendulum, I think, has swung a little bit due to public policy and, and legislative issues, but hopefully it'll come back soon because it sounds like there was a culture of, of learning and productivity where now it's all about productivity and discovery and first to market. Yeah, central to my career as an academic researcher was a, an interaction with the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. I was very much involved. I probably consulted uh, on an ongoing basis uh, throughout my entire career. Uh, most of the time, the money that I received for consulting, I used for my research, but not always. But uh, I never felt that I was, uh, as you say, a shill. I was not. I was never asked to uh, participate uh, in any way with the operation of with mm -hmm. the practical application of the company. I could avoid that in that era. I don't know what it would be like today in that regard. But I, uh, those collaborations were absolutely essential. I mean, it is through these consultantships and through these research grants that I actually learned what was important in the pharmaceutical industry and what were the important questions. I couldn't have done it without my collaboration, mm -hmm. financially or otherwise, uh, in terms of research and uh, research support and ideas. I mean, many of the ideas that I gained uh, uh, in my research came from mm -hmm. from seeing practical issues. Uh, one good example would be at um, solid state stability. There, there, was, there were ongoing philosophies about what causes solid state stability in, um, in a, in a crystalline solid. And uh, I was forced to think about that in talking with companies. And, and what came out of that was a, a totally new way of looking at it, at least at the time I thought mm -hmm. it was, and uh, of looking at the problem. So the back and forth between academia and industry is absolutely essential, but it, it must be kept uh, separate from uh, company goals. Mm -hmm ultimate practical goals. And Stay rooted in the need of yes. learning and yeah, continuation. Yeah. And I don't know how that philosophy, to what extent it exists now, but I can tell you I was very fortunate in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s that there were still companies very much anxious to get, it, get, get in touch with our students um, uh, for their own purposes, at the same time get in touch with the information that we were gathering, but uh, keeping it as broad and as basic as possible. So going off script a little bit in terms of, of this idea, what do you see as as the downside to the biased, potentially biased opinion that academia and, and industry need to stay separate, that they need to 
have those firewalls. It sounds to me like a lot of your opportunities and a lot of the drug discoveries within amorphous compounds that that you've been noted for wouldn't have happened without without that. Do you still would you would you subscribe to that opinion and and I think overall? it's I think it's absolutely essential from the academic perspective to have a controlled firewall. Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to, there has to be a certain difference between the business end of of course. So as the pharmaceutical industry becomes more geared, has become more geared to the end product and the the whole question of the, the financing of, of and income and profits and all that, that should never be part of a, of, of academic work that is geared to the education of students, training of graduate students, etc. So there, there has to be a controlled firewall. But I don't... And at one time, we, we kept that pretty separate, pretty easily. Now I think you have to be a little more alert to the possibility that mm-hmm. that, that line can be crossed. But I don't see... Uh, I, I, I don't see work in my area of interest, what I generally call physical pharmacy, as independent of what the goals of the pharmaceutical industry are. We should be addressing, and we tried, at least I tried, to address issues that I thought would be very helpful to the pharmaceutical industry in their understanding, but I I never felt that I was working for them. Mm -hmm. So your area, as I mentioned, of amorphous solids and and compounds and, and everything that goes into that, can you explain and, and outline a little bit how as as the leader in this field still today can can you talk about how your past research is is now getting into today's research and and how it's impacting and influencing even after you've retired well yeah of course uh, I'm not sure totally how influential the work has been but I can tell you this that uh, I started out in a totally different area of activity interfacial science and I continue that interfacial work, surface chemistry, until I retired. But along the way, I became aware of increasing importance of the solid state, and I was just sort of moved along with every discovery. It brought new opportunities. So that uh, there, there is a connection be- throughout my entire career. Uh, and I, in, f- in fact, that'll be part of the keynote address that I give at the Land Lakes Conference. Mm-hmm. I would say that... Uh, the, when specifically to the amorphous state, the pharmaceutical industry has always been concerned about producing highly crystalline materials because these crystalline materials are pure. Mm-hmm. That's how you purify materials, you crystallize them. And you also get a high degree of stability. Materials are very stable uh, in the presence of water and even at higher temperatures. And periodically, however, people who are trying to get crystals can't get them, they end up with amorphous material, or they process process them in such a way that they become amorphous, non-crystalline. And these non-crystalline materials have very different physical properties than crystalline materials. So initially, uh, when I started out and well into our work with the amorphous state, working with materials that were not stable and not thermodynamically stable, uh, non-crystalline materials was a no-no. In other words, the pharmaceutical industry just didn't want to have any part of dealing 
with amorphous materials. They were considered problems, and they still are mm -hmm. a problem. Bigger problems than they're worth dealing yes, with. Yes, yes. So if you couldn't make a material crystalline, you went and looked for another material that could be made crystalline. That was the general philosophy. We fell into this, of course, so uh, we discovered that we could inadvertently make things crystalline and not realize it, partially, uh, partially amorphous, I'm sorry. We could make them partially amorphous through the processing. And we came across this, again, uh, based on some consulting work that I had done and, uh, and research that we were doing. So that opened up a whole new area that, first of all, if something does become amorphous and we don't know, and we better understand the properties of that amorphous material and get rid of it, if, if, if mm -hmm. we put it bluntly. So that was the first stage. And so that initially my work was really involved in how do you, uh, how do you prevent something from becoming amorphous? But then this led naturally to the question, could you stabilize an amorphous material and make it uh, stable enough that it could be put into a product and, and, and use could be made of some of its unique positive characteristics, mm -hmm. particularly greater dissolution behavior, more solubility uh, relative to the crystal. And concurrently what happened in the pharmaceutical industry is that people started getting more sophisticated in the drug discovery process. They started using high-throughput screening and biomarkers to mm -hmm. identify potential candidates. We became interested in the term drugability, mm -hmm. that a drug could be, have physical properties that would enhance its biological properties. And what's turning out that they were producing, through this process, crystalline materials that were extraordinarily insoluble in water wow. with poor dissolution. So two things came together, luckily for me in a sense, that our research was focusing on a possible way to overcome that problem. And although I never in my research prepared a commercial amorphous dispersion using polymers as inhibitors, the work we did led to a better, I think, helped to lead to a better, and others of course, mm -hmm. led to a better understanding of how you might be able to stabilize these amorphous materials through the use of particularly polymers. And that's what led the whole area of amorphous dispersions. So uh, we, we just happened to be there at the right time. And, and suddenly, and today of course, whole attitudes about the use of the amorphous state have changed and the need to understand how you can improve their stability during their shelf life, and then, of course, enhance their dissolution properties when they're administered has become central to what's um, going on today in the pharmaceutical industry. Were you working off of an operating theory that these two areas would be coming together and that the science would be overlapping in terms of benefit to both? Yeah, well, you know, earlier, People had published work on showing that they could use polymer systems, particularly uh, mix them with drugs and, and produce supersaturated solutions that remained in aqueous solution for various periods of time. So, but nobody really, uh, as I said, the industry's attitude was scary because these things can crystallize out mm -hmm. any minute. Mm -hmm. So there was a reluctance to follow up. When we started studying the amorphous state in more detail, characterizing uh, amorphous material, particularly uh, our uh, review article I wrote in 1996 
where we uh, promoted the idea of the importance of characterizing amorphous materials and how it could be used to uh, stabilize these systems. That, I think, was a turning point in the, in the response to our work, as I saw it. And that paper is still, last year in 2015, it was still the number four paper cited in JFARM Psi. So, and that's only because people always start papers out by referring to some earlier work. <laughs> but for us, that, uh, that paper was the turning point in, in, in changing attitudes, as I saw it. That people started to be a little braver about how they might be able to stabilize systems if they carefully characterize the amorphous material. Does that make sense? It does. It does, and and that leads me to sometimes from a from a leadership standpoint, from a scientist standpoint, from a humanistic standpoint, I guess the question of you you mentioned bravery. Can you talk a little bit about professionally? It can be on the academic leadership side, the science side. What have you considered to be your biggest successes and maybe, for lack of a better word, failures or opportunities to do better if you could do it all over again? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, as far as impact, I think uh, I think you've kind of hit it on the head of, in, in this term bravery. Uh if you can provide a framework of knowledge that increases the probability that you can do it, what you want to do, that lessens, in other words, you're lessening risk. It's really a question of risk assessment and mm -hmm. risk management, which I'm not an expert on. But when you just have a black box, an amorphous material, this glob of material that mm -hmm. has no crystallinity, and it sits there and it crystallizes and it does bad things. And you change that to look more closely at what, what's going on in, in this system at the molecular level and what strategies could you use to overcome instabilities or, what, or to enhance positive properties. So it really boils down to knowledge uh, and rules. I, I, my, one of my favorite terms has been rules of thumb. It's not easy to predict everything with certainty. It's a complex field. Mm -hmm. But if you can develop rules of thumb, as I often call them, the fact that uh, every 10 degree change causes this much change in a property. If you can do that, then you can start to, you can have a starting point to addressing the problem. And I've been very pleased to see that at the commercial level, people have been able to address that problem through uh, sophisticated manufacturing processes like spray drying and mm -hmm. uh, hot melt extrusion. These processes and the formulation of dispersions in these processes uh, build off this question of risk assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's been rewarding in that sense. So that that's probably been one of the more rewarding aspects in terms of the practical application. Mm -hmm. The most rewarding part of what I've been able to do is, of course, my students and my research associates and I've always considered myself an educator first and a, a researcher second, if, if I may put it that way. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, what driv drove my research was uh, the wanting to educate and train students who could then go on and do things in the field. So, but failures are, you know, you, you always could do things, more things, mm -hmm. particularly as I, I've been, re you know, officially retired now for 10 years. Uh, and... Uh, it's frustrating sometimes that I see new issues and I'd like 
So I do a lot of talking and writing and encouraging of young people, but of course you would love to have done more and um, gone in certain directions that you did not take because you have to make choices. But in, overall, uh, uh, like anybody else, you have your successes and failures, but I, I'm particularly pleased that that uh, our, our work has focused on trying to keep a fundamental focus and, uh, and giving some indication of how it might be used practically. Well, it sounds like you're, you know, 10 years is, it can be a long time or not such of a long time. And it sounds to me like the work that is continually being referenced is, is still very valid today. A lot of the work that we're going to be talking about that, that you've had great impact on is going to be outlined, correct me if I'm wrong, at the June Lando Lakes Conference right. at UW-Madison right. from June 6th through 9th. What do you think of that program? Do you think that's that's outlining your your best stuff, or, or do you think that's just outlining the 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 content that is most applicable today? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, from what I can see from the topics that are being developed, uh, we are getting probably you know the focus on new directions and and where do we go next? I think is the key selling point of the conference. I'm less concerned about the, addressing my work. Uh, I think that uh, as I look at the various topics, uh, they are looking, each of the topics is looking at the fundamental problems that have surfaced over the years. Uh, they're looking at uh, how well, where are we now and where are we going? And uh, I'm very pleased to see that a lot of attention is being focused both on the processing of these materials, the evaluation of their performance, in terms of dissolution, methods of predicting stability, it's all there. So uh, I see this as a, 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 I see this as a building off what, what we try to do, but at the same time, you know, people have new ideas and they, they're, they're taking off in new directions and uh, I'm very excited about it. What I will try to do in my talk is to raise some questions that are on my mind and, and I see that most of the things on my mind are topics that will be discussed. I don't know if that's helpful. No, it, it is. So you mentioned you don't know if it if it's really focusing in on you. The title of the of the 2016 <laughs> Land Lakes is leading the way: new directions in pharmaceutical amorphous materials and amorphous solid dispersions. A tribute to Professor George Zagrafi. So, it, <laughs> like it or not, it's focusing in on you. Yeah. Which yeah. is a great thing, I think, for, for you personally, but from somebody that's looking at this from a little bit different perspective of professional development, it certainly speaks volumes to what you've done. Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, we were at it long enough that we covered a lot of ground, there's no question about it, and I think you know, people were working, at people, there are plenty of people that have worked in this field since we started, they've all made their contributions, but I'm pleased that, as I said earlier, that what we try to do, both from a scientific perspective as well as selling the value of what we were mm -hmm. doing and what the value ultimately, both to the science and the technology, seems to have borne some fruit. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I accept the tribute <laughs> reluctantly, <laughs> and I, I just think that the conference will be more than a tribute to me based on what I've seen. Right, right. And the quality of the people that are speaking, uh, they're state-of-the-art folks, both in academia and in the industry. So I'm confident that... 
it's a lot of your previous students that are yeah and yeah, yeah I mean, and uh, I'm very proud of that group uh, and uh, I think they've carried the ball but it, and there are lots of other people who have come into the field and, and made contributions so yeah I I appreciate the tribute so from June sixth through nine uh, the Land O'Lakes conference is focusing specifically on George and George's work. AAPS also has a course April 18th through the 20th on amorphous solids and, and solid states, I believe. I would encourage everybody listening to, to check out what AAPS is doing as well and learn from what both organizations are doing to, to help further this area of science along. This concludes our part one conversation with Professor Zagrafi. Join us next time for the conclusion of this conversation in Episode 4, Part 2. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Apothecary Club with Dr. Eric Burns. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theapothecaryclub.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archives section on our website for previous podcasts and follow us on social media. This has been a collaboration between UW-Madison School of Pharmacy, Division of Pharmacy Professional Development, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. Join us next time for another edition of the Apothecary Club Podcast.